Have you ever noticed the abundance of traffic signs around us everywhere, every day? Everywhere you look, you're going to come across them, and, and some signs regulate the flow of traffic, like speed limit signs and stop signs. Other signs tell you what to expect ahead, like construction signs or railroad crossing signs or the dreaded speed bump signs. Then there are the signs that indicate your location or provide directions, such as street signs, mile markers, exit signs. The most important thing about traffic signs, though, is that every sign serves a purpose. Some provide drivers with useful information, some keep drivers safe during their travels, and, and some direct drivers toward their destination. But without traffic signs, driving would be a chaotic, frustrating, and dangerous endeavor. And I think that's why traffic signs serve as a great metaphor for the Bible. Because without proper signage from God, our lives would be a chaotic, frustrating, and dangerous endeavor. Through His inspired Word, God gave us the signs we need to provide us with useful information, safety guidelines, and directions to our ultimate destination. So, for instance, if you pull up to a stop sign, you can use that as a... a, a as a tool to help you remember God's Word. For instance, you can pull up to a stop sign and think about all the passages in which we are told to stop something. For instance, maybe you'll think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 34, where Paul told the, Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth to stop sinning. Or maybe you'll pull up to a yield sign and maybe you'll think about a biblical passage that uses the term yield in it. Now, what you probably want to do is think of the song, Yield Not to Temptation. But that terminology doesn't technically appear in Scripture. So I encourage you to consider First, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 8, where King Hezekiah instructed the Israelites to submit to God when he said, Do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord. And you'll encounter those do not enter signs. When you encounter one of those, why not be reminded to avoid evil, since Solomon declared in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. And you know what I just realized? This would have been really helpful if I was doing this while I was talking. <laughs> but what if you encountered this sign? What could you think of if you encountered the curvy road sign? Well, to be honest, I don't have a biblical passage to pair with this one. But I do think this sign pairs well with the book of Jonah. Because what this sign communicates to me is that life is filled with twists and turns. And the book of Jonah is filled with its fair share of unique turns. You may recall that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. So he turned and set sail in the other direction for Tarshish. God intervened by turning the sea against him, which ultimately, which ultimately resulted in Jonah being turned into fish food. 
when he was thrown overboard. And while in the belly of that fish, Jonah turned to God through prayer. And God heard his prayer and decided to give him a second chance. So he turned over the stomach of that fish, which resulted in it vomiting Jonah out upon to dry land. And when God called Jonah that second time, Jonah turned his attention to Nineveh. And I want you to look at what happens next in the story of Jonah. That takes us to the third chapter of Jonah, starting in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his entire message. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that's not much of a sermon. I know a thing or two about writing sermons, and that's, that's not much of a sermon. He doesn't grab their attention with a joke on the front end. He doesn't use any powerful illustrations. He doesn't employ any alliteration or rhymes to help his audience remember the content of his lesson. He doesn't even have more than one point. In Hebrew, his sermon was just five words total. And he doesn't even offer the invitation. All I'm saying is that it didn't take Jonah very long to write that sermon. On top of that, the text says nothing about his delivery. It doesn't indicate whether he preached it as a compassionate plea or a harsh chastisement. It doesn't say whether or not he showed emotion or, or inflection. But despite all that, the text indicates that that little five-word sermon had a big impact. And before you approach me tonight after this and say, hey, you can do a lot with a little, just don't. Understand the point I'm making. We don't really have the entirety of everything Jonah said. We have those few words. But those few words had a tremendous impact in Nineveh. In fact, what happened next is arguably the greatest conversion of people in the Old Testament. Let's pick up the reading in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Did you notice the use of turning language in those last few verses? In order to get God to turn from his fierce anger, the Ninevites realized that they needed to turn from their evil ways. When we talk about turning, what we're really talking about is repentance. The Greek word translated repent means to change one's mind. It is derived from the combination of a preposition that means with, after, or behind, and a verb which means to perceive with the mind or to understand. And so its literal meaning is to think differently afterward. To change the mind or to change the actions to turn things around. That's what repentance means. And here in the story of the Ninevites, we learn something about repentance. We learn something about turning. First, we learn that turning is submissive. Now, I talked about submission last week, but let's talk about it some more this week. I want you to think for a moment, how was Jonah able to be so effective in Nineveh? I mean, this guy wasn't from there. He's a foreigner, and yet he ignited this massive conversion of people. This conversion that reached to the top of the city. This conversion that involved the entire city. And this guy didn't even want to be there. Remember, he was anti-Nineveh, not just at the beginning of the story, but as we'll study next time, at the end of the story as well. This guy was unimpassioned about the mission. So how did he do it? Some theorize that it has everything to do with his gastrointestinal experience. What I mean is that some contend that Jonah's in-the-belly-of-the-fish experience preceded him. Perhaps people in Nineveh had heard about a prophet who survived being swallowed by a fish and spit out on dry land. I mean, think about it. Could someone have witnessed his expulsion from that fish and then his eventual arrival on the beaches of the Mediterranean? And then as he surfaced from the water and walked up on dry land, he turns to him and says, which way to Nineveh? I mean, could that story have circulated and been passed on ahead of him? Others contend that his physical appearance was so altered by the digestive process of that fish that it had to have an impact on the Ninevites. Some scholars say that his skin would have been bleached or hairless or scarred from the whole process. And if he had waltzed into Nineveh with a strange appearance like that, he would have gotten their attention very easily. And his body would have provided living proof of God's capacity to deal with sin. But I think searching for such solutions is an unproductive and unnecessary endeavor. Because the reason Nineveh listened had nothing to do with Jonah. And everything to do with with God. 
Notice in verse 5 of Jonah chapter 3. Notice that the text doesn't say the Ninevites believed Jonah. The text says the Ninevites believed God. Their faith was not rooted in Jonah. It was rooted in God. They believed that God could and would destroy them unless something changed. And their belief was an acknowledgement of God's supremacy and therefore their need to submit. And Jesus associated submission to God's reign with repentance. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Matthew provides a summary statement of Jesus' chief message when he preached. This is on the heels of his temptation in the wilderness. And Matthew said this, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now notice the emphasis is on repenting. But as Jesus talks about repentance, he reminds people whose kingdom it is. The kingdom belongs to the God of heaven. The kingdom is not yours. The kingdom is not this world's. The kingdom is that which comes from heaven and therefore originates with God. As one preacher pointed out, Jesus' message was in effect saying that the good news isn't just salvation. The good news is also sovereignty. In other words, the good news is that eternal life is available, but in order to receive it, you have to relinquish your own claim to the throne. If you look there in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 6, notice that the king of Nineveh arose from his throne, got down from his throne, and sat in the ashes. The king of Nineveh recognized something that all too often we don't. That if we're going to repent, it means we have to give up the throne. We have to step down in order to place God in his proper place. So when Jonah proclaimed that the Ninevites had 40 days until their city would be destroyed... The Ninevites interpreted that as an opportunity. An opportunity to turn things around. And that's exactly what they do. And it's not just something they did in word. It's something that they visibly demonstrated. That's the other thing you need to know about repentance. That's the other thing you need to know about turning. Turning is demonstrative. Demonstrative means serving as conclusive evidence of something or giving proof. The proof of their repentance was visible. The king issues a, a decree. And what's so very interesting about the decree is that he instructed the Ninevites to do everything that God had instructed the Israelites to do whenever they needed to repent as a nation. You may be familiar with this verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. When Israel dedicated the temple, God gave these words to Solomon. He said, if my people who are called by my name 
humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, I want you to notice how the Ninevites fulfilled the three primary objectives that God gave to the Israelites. First, they humbled themselves. The text indicates that the king ordered every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Humility is what the sackcloth was for. Sackcloth, like that burlap sack pictured on the screen, was a really scratchy, uncomfortable material that you would wear as a sign of your penance. Because it, would, it, it was intended to showcase that the discomfort you were experiencing on the outside was reflective of the discomfort you felt on the inside because you recognized your sin. And so when this order went out for everyone to wear sackcloth, it was intended to be a demonstration of humility, of the recognition that they were wrong and they were humbling themselves, not wearing their finest clothes, but wearing this to demonstrate how, how awful they had been. But not only did they humble themselves, but they also prayed and sought the face of God because the text tells us in verse 8 that they were instructed to call out to God. And while we're not told exactly what all the turning from their wicked ways entailed, all we know is that by the end of chapter 3, God saw what they did. He saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way. And so whatever that entailed, it was something God could see. And so in the text of Jonah chapter 3, what we find are the Ninevites obeying orders given to the Israelites way back in the days of Solomon on how to respond when their nation, when their people, when their whole society is guilty of sin. They're demonstrating their repentance. One preacher said, Turning is more than some vague change of heart. Turning involves concrete changes in the practices of your life. And I think this, this is exemplified by David. Psalm chapter 51 was written by David after his sin with Bathsheba was exposed. And in Psalm 51, David penitently writes these words, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David is repenting. But he doesn't just make this request of God for forgiveness. He identifies what changes he's going to make in his life. If you pick up that chapter in verse 13 and read through verse 17, this is what you'll find. David said, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David is saying he's going to confront and correct the sin in other people's lives, just as Nathan confronted and corrected the sin in his life. And he's saying that he's going to praise God with every opportunity that he has. He's saying that his life is going to be oriented around the one who is the source of his salvation. David isn't just asking for forgiveness in this psalm. David isn't just apologizing in this psalm. David is saying how he's going to change. Because David understood that when it comes to repentance, it should be demonstrative. It should be visible. It should be evident. One preacher said, if your walk with God is not visibly changing some things about your life, then you may not be walking with God. That's because genuine repentance reflects on the outside what is going on on the inside. And God notices when someone turns. That's what Verse 10 is saying, God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way. Turning is demonstrative. But turning is also imperative. Turning is imperative because God cannot turn away from your sins unless you turn to him. God cannot turn away from your sins unless you turn to him. To him. See, without repentance, God would have destroyed Nineveh. And without repentance, God will destroy us. I want you to notice the passages in the New Testament that make reference to repentance. On one occasion, Jesus' audience brought up the suffering of some fellow Jews. Jews who died when a tower fell on them. And Jesus took it as an opportunity to discuss salvation. He indicated that one's suffering is not an indication of being a worse sinner. And then he twice said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. They were dealing with a physical death. He used it to point to a spiritual one. And when Peter preached the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, his audience, upon hearing about Jesus and their complicity in his execution, came to the point of asking, what shall we do? And Peter's response was this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul spoke to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, he made reference to the Athenians' spirituality, saying, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And then he went on to identify that unknown God to them as the one true God. And as he talked about the one true God, he, in, he indicated that the one true God is greater than any man-made image. And in verse 30 and 31 of Acts 17, he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere 
to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when Jesus communicated messages to the churches in Asia via John, he repeatedly brought up the subject of repentance. To the church in Ephesus, he said in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And to the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus said, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And to the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And when you consider all of these passages we just ran through in the New Testament, they all have a key theme the theme of repentance. And the message is that without repentance, without turning, you and I are destined for destruction, just like the Ninevites were. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who turned our sins over to Jesus. And if we'll turn to the cross, then he'll turn our sin into righteousness. Because his word declares that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it's all about turning. It's all about turning. The uh, Tui family on which the movie The Blind Side is based has been in the news a lot lately. The young man that they took into their home, Michael Orr, has sued them, and it's an ongoing legal battle. But if you know the story, or if you've ever heard them speak about their story, it's often said that two words changed their life. You see, Sean and Louie Antui, they saw Michael Orr standing outside of their school one day during Thanksgiving break. They knew it was a time that no kids should be at the school. And they're driving by and see him standing there. Sean will tell you that he would have just kept going. He didn't really pay that much attention. But they got a little ways down the road, and his wife said two words that changed everything. Those two words were turn around. And that's what they did. They turned around and in so doing, helped a young man out. Clothing. Apparently he was just wearing a t-shirt and shorts in the middle of winter. Turn around was all that it took. Those two words. Now, how that story unfolds is still an ongoing saga right now. 
I'm not holding them up as examples of the faith or anything like that. But those two words are powerful, aren't they? Turn around. Those two words saved Nineveh. And those two words can save you as well. Because all Nineveh had to do and all we have to do is turn around. If you're going in the wrong direction, tonight's your invitation. Your invitation to change directions. To, in fact, repent. To turn around. Because there's only one way to get to heaven. And you've got to turn to get there. And if you're here tonight and you've never made a decision to make that turn, if you hear those words of Peter to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you've never done that, then we offer the invitation for you to make that decision tonight. Whatever your need is this evening, don't leave here without turning. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?